0: Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including greenmajority.ca. Thanks for joining us. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I'm here with Stuart Basden, I'm going to say friend of the show. You've been on a few times over the many years, really. The co-founder of XR and former uh, resident of Toronto who is organizing with 350.org, for those of you who remember the time where we would have been talking a lot about the buses going down to New York City for, I believe, the 2014 climate action, Stu was greatly involved in that work. We might have talked to you then, actually, is what I'm thinking of, as well as right before one of the XR actions that occurred about two or three years ago. But welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me again. So this is a bit of a activist retrospective, a little bit, of your last few years, both organizing with XR. You've recently left XR to move on to other projects. And to get there, I think we need to start all the way in Toronto. So let's start with you in Toronto and your decision to move back to the UK, because you obviously come to Toronto for a while and then decide to move back.
1: Yeah. So I moved to Toronto initially 2005 for graduate school, studied philosophy and theology, went abroad for a few years, and I came back in 2010, knowing that I wanted to get involved in activism in some way, but struggling. The first couple of years, I really struggled. I didn't find a community to get involved with. I went to a couple of protests, I volunteered at a couple of one-off things. But then I discovered the fledgling group of Toronto350.org, and it was really exciting. It was a small group. We could do what we wanted, and suddenly there was this thing that I could contribute to. And it, there was a like, ah, I've got energy for this. And it gives some meaning and some purpose to my life. And it gives me a community that I can organize. with. And gradually over the next few, three, three and a half, four years, I just started pouring myself into that more and more. It quit one of my jobs. So I'd go down to part-time so I could do more, it, you know, became the center of my week to go to the weekly meetings, the community became the community that I was really involved with and yeah it was a big part of my life we did some amazing things as you mentioned the the people's climate march in new york organizing to go down there we did divestment at university of toronto we're involved in that which have divested just a few months ago only or no they said they would a few months ago they will do it within the next year which is only about two years behind the schedule that we'd asked them to a remarkable victory there
0: yeah sorry I, i can't tell a story without remarking on it including my favorite protest chant of all time which was fossil fuel divestment when do we want it gradually over five years remains oh yeah when do we want
1: divestment when do we want it gradually over five years
0: (laughs) yeah remains one of my favorite chants of all time and it was not it will end up being not as gradual and over seven years but a pretty solid victory given the scale of the actual transition and and the efforts that was put forward
1: yeah 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 yeah. so an amazing thing there and and of course when the university announced its divestment they used a lot of the language that we fed them basically so that was incredible anti-pipelines oil pipelines gas all of that the group was doing some work or trying to do some work So a sort of question mark how how well we did it but around indigenous sovereignty Indigenous solidarity, and that was always a bit of contention in the group, but there was a, a desire to do that as best we could but while I was there, I also got a sense of what we're doing here isn't big enough it's not it's not meeting the scale of the systems of global politics, capitalism, tax havens, agriculture, the abuse of workers and All of this stuff is going on at a scale that is just magnitudes above what we were managing to do in 350 And so that took me into, ah, I'm going to go to Europe. And I, I knew I wanted to go to the Paris COP, the United Nations climate summit in the end of 2015. And then the idea I had was I'll travel Europe for a little bit, looking at what other movements are happening there what kind of activist spaces there are, how they're organizing and hopefully get some ideas to bring back to Toronto was my plan. I've not been back. I got captured by Europe. I spent the summer going to various, well, the whole year basically going to various different movements and spaces around lots of different things from deforestation things to no borders, to housing rights, to reproduction rights, like all kinds of different things that were, were going on. And towards the end of that year, I came across the fledgling group Rising Up. I heard about it, that it was going to do its first action to shut down a road going into Heathrow. I went to that first action. I went to the first intro training that Rising Up ran. It's the three people that had set up Rising Up ran that intro training, It's laid out a strategy. And immediately I was like, wow, okay, this looks good. This looks worth putting myself into i'll give the next two years of my life to this project and that's what i did and rising up is the group that extinction rebellion eventually came out of
0: wow let's say it's, it's amazing how so much of this i feel like, i feel like afterwards can feel like planned and yet it's also just like you walk into the right room at the right time and you meet a few yeah. people that you connect with and you're like oh oh there's some energy here we can do something Yeah, And so I feel, because I think this will be important later, maybe we can dive into a bit of the philosophy behind XR. You know, what were the impetuses and the decisions that you were making or what was the actual ideas behind the decisions you were making and then how did that inform your strategy?
1: Yeah, I think one of the first things that really attracted me to, to Rising Up was we need to be an experimental group that there is a, an activist culture that currently exists and there's certain things that are the right way to do activism. And whilst we remain in that way of doing things, the system itself isn't going to change because we're just repeating the same thing and so the system is repeating the same thing. So we need to experiment to push the boundaries of what is acceptable activism, what is possible as activists. There was a sense that we had of activism had become a lot about direct action, small groups, affinity groups going off, attaching themselves to something, blocking a road, uh, climbing a bit of infrastructure, stopping, you know, a fracking rig, stopping a pipeline, stopping a a tanker, whatever it was, we're going to try and stop something. And Rising Up then looked at some of the history and the theory and, and said, Hang on this, but there's something here around civil disobedience, mass civil disobedience that we're not doing. Look at what happened with the civil rights. Look at what happened with Gandhi in India and all of that. Let's, Let's find ways that make it easy for this mass participation. It doesn't really matter what people are doing to break the rules to, you know, to get in the way, but creating this disruption itself is the thing. And so you want to make the bar as low as possible, so as many people as possible can participate in that and be disobedient in large groups. And we want to normalize civil disobedience. We want to make it so that now people see breaking the law isn't just a crazy thing that activists do. Breaking the law is the duty of citizens who are run by a criminal cartel called government. One of the other things that I, I think we took really well from the start, I remember reading Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, and talking about how we need to use climate change as a mobilizing issue for the kinds of system change that we want to see. And I've always thought of Extinction Rebellion as a democracy movement and not a climate movement. I think it's now fallen into and has become a climate movement. And people I know who are organizing in it now seem much more motivated and fixated on climate and stopping oil, stopping fossil fuel infrastructure, stopping these kinds of things, rather than the transformation of democracy into something that is far more democratic, far more empowering. And so to me, XR was always intended to be something, a democracy movement focused on system change, focused on systems of oppression and how to disrupt and interrupt, intervene in and transform those societal structures. I think we did pretty well at it, at least for the peak moments of XR, the end of 2018 and into 2019. There were some really incredible things and the world has changed forever because of it and the conversation and the normalization of civil disobedience like some of these are real massive successes that we, we've seen in the world
0: for sure and so would you say that because of the fact that you've always seen this as a democracy movement i presume that informed some of your most major and specific asks which were really focused on creating a citizens assembly and you know creating a place for citizens to have their say and how you should tackle these issues being sort of a central ask that to me strikes me as a very citizen engagement strategy first and foremost you know rather than say other protests that might come out and say no, no what we want is renewable energy for everybody which is obviously a much more I think technocratic solution perhaps
1: yeah there's a sense that people are a bit sick of experts telling them what the solutions are and and who are we as a bunch of activists to go around and tell society at large, what is the right way to do society, right? And that's often what activist groups do is they say, here, here's what we should be doing, here's what we shouldn't be doing. The idea in XR, as you say, was to bring about citizen assemblies so that a jury of the people could deeply discuss and investigate different areas of society that needed changing, and then it would be the people making those decisions, not the activists saying what should happen. Put it back to the people of the country and say, we need to make these decisions together. It can't just be
0: a small group. Right, that makes sense. And so maybe we can take ourselves then through a bit of those early actions. What were the first couple of things y'all did and how did you sort of experience that growth? Because obviously from a few people to a movement that successfully has spawned, I would say probably hundreds of XR and across the world, XR is now a thing. And so maybe taste takes through that first year two as you grew in both your own community, but also across the world. Yeah. So as
1: rising up, I want to go back to the rising up days because the rising up days, we established a group of, I don't know, between 10 and 30 people that were part of rising up, right? So it depended of who was, yeah, over a couple of years, who was organizing, how much were they organizing? Did they come and go? We had some in-person gatherings for weekends. They were really important, bringing us together, building trust, and also allowed us some spaces to both strategize and work out some things, but also start to run workshops for each other and practice, um, and therefore develop some of our workshops, which became then the workshops that went out there the heading for extinction and what to do about it. Talk the nonviolent direct action, nonviolent uh, civil disobedience training. And there were a few other early trainings that we had, but then also that time was about trust building. It was about really getting to know what's the activist scene and what do we need to go beyond? How do we lead people and make it easier for people to take the step into civil disobedience? Ah. We need to get arrested a bunch of times ourselves so that we can talk with authority about what the arrest process is like. Uh, We need to do a hunger strike or a a long-term fast of several weeks so that we can talk about that experience. We need some of us to have gone to prison so we can give some sense of we've been there, we've done that, we've seen the prison system. We also really need to get into what are our principles and values and what are our strategy documents? Because these things are going to be read countless thousands of times if we take off into a big movement and we didn't imagine like there was an idea that we would take off into a big movement but i didn't really believe it until it was happening right i was i was just a group of 30 of us and five of us meeting each week in my living room cooking a meal together and trying to figure out which tesco or which Supermarket were going to go and stick some stickers on things as a little naughty thing to do, occasionally sitting down in roads or blocking something. But that trust building and that sort of fine tuning, I think, is the critical part that's often forgotten to be mentioned in the history of movement. We were working on the intricate fractal patterns that when the movement got big, those say the fractal happened and it enlarged and the same things that we'd worked on really carefully became really beautiful and the things where there was bits of conflict between us became massive divisions in the movement and became massive conversations that went on for months and months some of them years we hadn't done all the work to resolve those things that, that work is infinite but it was interesting to see how the small stuff became the big stuff the large reflected small
0: right that makes sense with scale comes scaling everything you can scale your successes, but also the little grains of sand become, can become deserts, I'm sure. And so, so you started there and then you obviously began to do What was the first sort of big action? What was the first thing that you did where you're like, oh man, maybe this will become as big as we thought it could. Maybe is the right way to ask that question. Yeah. So
1: that was the the declaration of rebellion, October 31st of uh, 2018, the pagan holiday of Samhain or Halloween, go down to Parliament Square and we're going to read out a declaration of rebellion. And at first we were like, yeah, maybe we'll manage to get 30 people down to London for this sort of symbolic reading of a thing. And about, I want to say, three weeks before that, the IPCC came out with a report. That's the UN climate group came out with a report saying, we've got 12 years left to turn this around and that alerted some people and then george Mombio, one of the guardian columnists, sort of his next piece was basically saying yeah look at this report this is awful we don't need just some tweaks here we need a full-scale rebellion oh and by the way there's one about to launch in two weeks time get down here folks and then over the next two weeks suddenly the you know the facebook numbers on that event go going from Eight to 12 to 20 to 50 to 100 and it's, oh wow, this is taking off. We've got to get our stuff together. We've got to really something's going to happen. And then that was the day that this young Swedish girl didn't really know who she was but she came down from Sweden in her electric car. Greta was there you know and 1500 people showed up and sound system, just a little shoulder carriage speaker was so inadequate for what, because we just didn't expect it to be this massive thing. And then getting those people, those thousand people, or 1500 people onto the road to block the road outside parliament, just a spontaneous, hey, no one's done a nonviolent direct action training. We don't know about the, like, what to do if we're arrested, but we're just going to go and do it anyway. And like, let's see what happens. So that was the first, like, oh, something's happening here. Like, wow. And then I remember on that day, we said, two and a half weeks from now, we're going to shut down five of the bridges in London, uh, of the major bridges going over the River Thames. And and (laughs) then we finished that day and we went back to a huddle and we're like, what have we just promised? We've got to organize, like, five mini festivals on some bridges to block some roads. All right, well, let's see what happens. And then just the people started coming, the people like were showing up. And so there was this moment of like manifestation where it's just like, okay, you form this group, you do this needs to happen. Oh, you're here to do that. And that's your specialty. You've done this for a corporation for the last 10 years. Great. All right. You've run festivals, okay. And you you just happened to be back in the UK with nothing on your hands. Run five festivals, great. And it just happened, right? And so those five bridges then became the, like, the focal point that said, boom, we're here, we're in rebellion. That was the first time really the message got out internationally. And then for the next six months, just more and more people showed up as we started to plan for the big April rebellion in 2019 um, where we held five sites in London for two weeks.
0: Right, yeah. I think that might have been the time we spoke last. It was right before that experience. And I remember being very thankful to you because I think you called us at like midnight your time, which was the only time you had available. And it was like, because I'm sure that time must have been absolutely nuts. And what's interesting about you talking about that is your descriptions of it mirror experiences I have had with other large events where you get to the point of, you know, we threw, I was part of a thing here, we threw a big sort of festival and it got to the point where it's sort of, you just had to trust that everyone was doing their work. Like you just, and, and people would show up and they just help in the ways they could. And it's sort of that, that, that ability of people to find their niche to show up. If you make something so magnetic that people will start showing up, they'll find their way into the niches where it feels like they can fit best and that serendipity and spontaneity that comes together in those moments i think is one of the more powerful experiences i think that i've ever experienced
1: and it's it's so yeah it's the moment of the whirlwind is is it's been termed and Sort of the sense that I got when I first joined 350.org and could like, now, oh, my work is of value. I can really give myself to this thing, right? Before I'd wanted to do it and I didn't know how. Suddenly there was a way and so I could, right? It was that happened for tens of thousands of people within a few months. Suddenly all of these people that wanted to do something and didn't know how found a way to do something and found their way in. And used all of the skills and all of the experience they had to bring what they could and the desires of what they were finding their way to do the bits that they really wanted to do and they were highly skilled at. So everyone just did it and unleashed the energy. Right. Movements happen when there's an energy that gets unleashed. And they, that means that they can't happen all the time. The ocean waves can't be at the high wave all the time. There's a wave and then there's a lull and the wave and a lull. And so we'll have an unleashing and then there will be a lull before the next unleashing comes. And my sense is we're a bit more in some of the lull and things are building and things are getting tense and there will be unleashing in activism in the next little while. But I don't know whether that's a couple of months or whether that's like five years before the next big thing really yeah. happens.
0: That's interesting because that definitely us a little bit with some of the thoughts that I have about how so much of the work in the lulls for me have to do with sort of picking away at the power structures that be, picking away at the structures that are currently so entrenched. So when the next wave happens, the chances that you knock one of these things over and really fundamentally reshape society is increasing. Every time you're able to these in these lull periods of building up new systems, of, of, of trying to bring more solutions or new ways of living to the fore, bringing more people to understanding these things. And I feel like that's the work I think of the lull period, which can be less sexy. You know, I do think that there it's not the same feeling to be a part of the work that's just picking away at things, that it is the part of the huge crush. I'm sure there's nothing like being in front of 15,000 people or being a part of 15,000 people declaring a rebellion in in front of parliament. That is going to be a rush that will, will never be matched by someone going to their bank and telling them that they're closing their bank account because they refuse to stop funding fossil fuels. And and yet I think that every action, small action like that allows for that next big action to be able to be even more powerful because the systems that are trying to oppress those things will be hopefully at least a little bit weaker.
1: Yeah, it all matters. And whilst we're picking away at it in the lull stage, that current system is a system that's incentivized and trauma-driven to be devastating people and planet, right? And so although we might be picking away, things are getting destroyed. And so it's to not get like, Lazy is not quite the right word, but
0: complacent, not relax
1: too much in, yeah, complacent into the lull stage. Like we still need to really, I think, study and research what this reality is, what this society is, what's going on here and be in the experimental stage, right? Or be in the learning stage or be in the reflection, being more of the yin receptive observing, right? Like, this yeah is required of us it's still active yeah
0: yeah for sure because the reality remains just how devastating the destruction continues to be that I, I we're recording this i think a few days before the next ipcc report comes out and i've heard whispers that it will be quote devastating and so by the time listeners are probably hearing this it probably has already come will already have come out and it's not like every other year has not been the same. I feel like IPCC themselves have tried to figure out how to actually communicate in a way that drives action because of the fact that we've been really effectively ignoring these reports for the entirety that I have been doing the show. To get back into into your space, maybe moving towards the sort of the second half of XR, because I do want to give us time to actually talk about where you're headed and what you where your mind's at now. What, and dive into this as much as you like, I don't want to, I, I, I know that you, still see the work as, as being as important but what led you to this shift what were the first inklings of this belief that you know you'd have to leave or that your calling would be elsewhere and how did that manifest
1: yeah thank you
0: so
1: a few things there the april 2019 was the high point of xr at least in the uk that's when things really exploded we held these sites for two weeks that meant we recruit on them, we could train people, people get involved, the movement grew. By the time of the October rebellion, the police had adjusted their tactics. They knew us now. And so rather than just letting us have sites where all of the joy could happen and all the re- training and recruitment could happen and people's lives could be transformed on the spot. Now we were basically fighting a, a war of attrition in retreat that the police were just beating us back slowly over those 12 days. By the time the next rebellion came around, and of course, now we're in COVID, we didn't manage to get sites up. They were, the police were on us right from the start. We, you know, and, and last summer, the way that in the UK, we were doing this as a pop-up site and it might last. We thought, we hoped that we could have one that would last 24 hours and it never happened. You know, the police were just on it to take us down. And they cordoned off areas so that we couldn't interact with the public. They just contained us. So I started to realize, yeah, we're playing cat and mouse. We're not really succeeding here to grow the movement. We're not really getting headlines. All we're doing is repeating what we've done. And it's not creating the transformation that we'd previously seen happen. The wave has has done its wave. I also had gone through a burnout process. I mean, this had been so much of a demand on... All of me, I think intellectually, emotionally, physically, all of it. And also my partner passed away unexpectedly just after the April rebellion. So that had its toll of things, grief that needed to catch up on and and things like this. So I went through a burnout process. I realized I couldn't go to meetings because I no longer cared about any of the decision or any of the people. It wasn't that I chose to stop. It was that I, I had to, right. I realized I was no longer bringing anything. And then. Working through the grief of that, the betrayal of salute, you know, not being there with my friends when they needed me, all of this stuff. Oh, wow. I've become addicted to the purpose, gave that me. that kind of realization. Where am I in the universe if I'm not pursuing this thing, right? And having to work through that sort of almost a coming out of, out of addiction, not to a substance, but just to purpose itself. Right having some purpose in something external from me. and I think I mentioned my my late partner, Lizzie. One of the things that Lizzie brought me in, into sharp perspective is life and death and what happens. And my sense of like, hang on a second, I have a continued relationship with the being that is Lizzie. every time I mention Lizzie or call Lizzie to mind. There is there's Lizzie in some way present here. Right? Lizzie's present here in this conversation because I've summoned them by saying their name. And I started to realize, okay, I've got a relationship. That means there's a continuation of what Lizzie is beyond Lizzie's bodily death. Then hearing through some some of my teachers and my guides about how, you know, there's the manifest world and there's the dreaming realities that underlie this and pulling like on indigenous wisdom traditions uh, and such, yeah, there is the continuation and there's the manifest world that living and dying is a consensus reality experience, whereas process and relationship are in always in continuation. Extinction is also, it's a consensus reality experience right? A species. And this is, I, I remember hearing Aboriginal saying of, you, you can kill the kangaroo, but you, can, you can't kill kangaroo dreaming. There's a dreaming reality that continues that we can't ever lose. And this ties in with physics and the, you know, the conservation of information in this universe. You know, is there. It happens. It conserves information. It never leaves this universe some kind of sense that the universe itself is a living, intelligent, loving entity. We call this interbeing, and we call this God, or we call this the great mystery or great spirit. All of these different words that we have brought me, I, I guess Lizzie's death brought me into a confrontation with this deeper sense of reality that I needed to grapple with, and I needed to, I couldn't push off any longer. And that has also brought a relaxation into me in terms of what is mine to do? I guess industrial civilization has this sense of everything is urgent that we must get the next phone or we must fill up our lives with busyness or, you know, we, we've got to, I don't know, get into space or get to the singularity or whatever it is. And we're trying to get there urgently. Everyone's rushing and rushing and rushing. And what, where are we rushing to? We, as a continuation, as a dreaming process, have eternity to do that. So rushing is just one way of relating. Urgency is one way of relating and we don't need to be in the urgency that's so often felt in activism is a part of the urgency of industrial civilization. It just carries on doing the same thing and. I'm hearing these calls from all kinds of, you know, African heritage people, indigenous people, Sufi traditions, like all of these places calling and saying, hang on, there's a different way of relating. And we don't need to be in the activist urgency. We don't need to be in the rush. So what else, where else can we be if it's not urgent? That gives a very different perspective from what I was used to, right? Of we've got 12 years left to change the world or the IPCC saying that this is red light for humanity last summer, probably next week we'll say something even more urgent.
0: Yeah, for sure. That piece about urgency is something that I've gone back and forth with in my mind over and over again, because there is such an obvious tension between the ways in which I think speed and requirement to move quickly is so fundamentally part of the problem, like the fact that we need to have more and more stuff, the fact that the ways that our society pushes for us for more and more productivity, et cetera. And that I think, I truly believe that a big part of the answer in a lot of places is partially to slow down. You know, I think part of the effort has to be across the movement to simply just have ourselves slow down and more comfortably exist within ourselves and within our moments. And at the same time, there is this tension with the ways in which we are taught about our systems breaking down and that even the ways that we see that significant action right now over the next little bit has a much bigger impact than slower action. You know, like if we decarbonize by 2050, it's very, very different for the world if we decarbonize mostly over the next 10 years and then finish it off rather than doing very little for next 10 years and then have to much more steeply drop it off in terms of total and number of missions in the atmosphere. And I personally, a hundred percent feel the drive to do more. You know, like, like, I, I, like this addiction to purpose that you just referenced is something that speaks to me because there is this significant tension in myself, I feel like about how many things I, about the number of things I have to be doing enough and what that is. And always thinking that maybe the next thing will be the thing that makes it enough. And it's something I'm trying to de-learn, but it's such a difficult and probably lifelong journey to try to do that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And like my, I've got that, right? I've got that internalized voice that tells me do more, do more, do more. You're never doing enough, you know? Are you just taking an hour off just to sit there or take an afternoon nap? How dare you? Don't you know that there is people dying? And I, I think that's been called the white man's burden sometimes because it's particular particular um, way of relating to the world that has been internalized a lot by white men who then need to be saviors or, or white people that want to do more to be saviors to the to the, <laughs> to the planet, right? And I don't mean that to criticize, right? That is part of the great mystery unfolding, that is part of reality at this stage is that's what part of our patterning. And we've gained this through all of the patterns of cultural trauma and all of our education systems, all of our little snippets that come from our parents that we don't really pick up on. But suddenly, yeah, we've all carried the, not all, but many of us carry these internal critical voices saying that we're never quite doing enough. Don't you know how privileged you are? Do you know that one? You know, like right, yeah. And, and yet, if we were all to work like two days a week rather than five, probably that would be one of the greatest ways to, like, reduce carbon emissions. But when we well, exactly. Carbon exactly right. Like many of us don't. Radical yeah. rest is such a powerful thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I. I Completely agree. And so moving from there, I can sort of see where this is heading, but you're doing this internal work and then you are, which is sort of a little bit in contrast with, with sort of the, obviously XRs, we have this amount of time, we must get these people on the board. So I can see the disconnect that's sort of might be growing there, but what led you to the decision to sort of, okay, I have to like actually step back. And then maybe then my next question will be, what did that lead you to? So,
1: yeah, so the thing about stepping back was seeing how, okay, we're not doing the effective thing anymore. We're running around playing catamass with the police and we're burning people out. In the August rebellion, I just saw loads of people who were just basically in high states of emotional trauma. They're in contracted bodies, acting from places of fear and using more of their resources, their financial resources, their friendship resources, their emotional resources, their health in order to give themselves into this thing that was driving them and how that depletes the the beings, the people. It's not a life flourishing place to be. And so I don't want to be in it. And I ran some burnout courses trying to catch some of those people or give people permission to step away from, because it's an emotional drive. It's an addiction or it can be. And Yeah, not wanting to participate. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say is my sense is that whilst Extinction Rebellion continues to exist as the climate movement, a lot of people who were involved will go, oh, the climate movement's happening. They've got that. So I don't need to worry about it. Or I used to do XR. I'm glad that it continues to exist. And I'm glad that other people are now organizing it. Right? And so people will not be involved and not be making radical choices in the sense of going back to that root, going to life where they'll sort of life matters and making those choices moment by moment, day by day, because life, every part of it matters, every moment matters, every life, you know, every being, every human, every plant, all of us matter. We won't be making those radical choices because... The climate movement exists and it's doing its thing and if xr were to declare its end to say look we failed we we did something it was amazing it changed the world and we can no longer be relied upon to be the kind of transformation of society that's needed we end we come to an end what we that would do is it would create a vacuum in a system That would automatically pull in energy and attract something else to come in its place. But whilst XR stays in that role as the climate movement, it will prevent other things from coming into being. So I don't want to participate in something that prevents the next wave coming. And my sense is that that is what XR is doing in the UK. Referring to XR as a thing is a bit of a misnomer because XR, there might be the XR UK organizing group and network and that's probably what i'm more referring to then there's a bunch of local groups doing some incredible things and then there's the international groups which are just entire different things going on and i don't know what they're doing and some of them are really enlivening people into direct action or civil disobedience for the first time and really working on what is the edge of activism in in that particular cultural setting at the you know at this time so it's not that XR as a whole has come to an end, but my sense is that to see XR as a movement that is going to create transformation in the UK or the climate movement internationally is a dangerous thing to do that prevents new movements, new waves from coming into being.
0: Yeah, you can see versions of that in so many different places where activists, communities sort of rise up and then get powerful enough to become entrenched a bit and then in that process don't have the ability to recreate that sort of force. And so I guess the the follow-up question is then, what do you see as next for you? Where's your energy going?
1: So there's a few things that I'm getting more interested into. One of those is working around collective racialized trauma, really inspired by the work of Bresma Menicum. Um, and reading his book, My Grandmother's Hands, and listening to podcasts that he's done and really looking at. So why are white men so traumatized in particular ways that they then have so much pain to spread around, to blow trauma through people and other beings, you know, other than human beings? and And why do we have the societal structures that allow them to Blow that trauma through to to externalize that pain. What's the healing that's needed in white people and in white men in particular, so that that pattern is interrupted? And we know some of like theory around this, but Resma's calling is for us to do that work as white people in the body, do sort of looking in. How does the body react if we if just two white people walk into a room together, bodies? immediately change um, and configure themselves in ways that now enable certain conversations to happen and prevent others versus a white body and a, a body of culture, a body of African heritage going into the same room. Those two bodies will immediately react at the bodily level that again, prevents certain conversations and enables other conversations. So let's look at that initial thing that happens and how the body configures conversation and makes certain things possible and and certain things not. And how do we change that so that things become more possible? My desire is to see humanity as a family come back together again, to recognize that we're all interwoven. And if I hurt you, then I hurt myself. It's that sense of Ubuntu. It is through you that I am. So that's one of the strands is looking into like collective trauma in white bodies. Another thing that I'm interested in is cross movement collaboration more. I'm not quite sure where this is going yet, but something around when a movement or an organization comes up with trainings, it trains its people in, but what about if we start training other movements in, in those things? So what if XR were to offer its. NVDA is nonviolent direct action training to unions who offer their best trainings to women's rights groups. And women's rights groups offer stuff to Black Lives Matter, who offer stuff to XR, who, you know, and so we create more of a networks between each other and then things will fire off. And there is some of that, of course, happening, but maybe there's ways that we can really bring some some sense of pride to do the trainings of the other movements so the movements can almost accredit each other but look hey we are really paying attention to we're not just in our single issue but we're with each other it wouldn't just be trainings of course it would be then it would be about relationship building and consolidating those bridges and those growths into different places around the world and then there's a third strand that's that's interesting to me. Maybe I'll refer to this as sacred activism or inner word activism. And it's around, so what is the place of changing inner reality in order to affect change in the external world? I know that I can change my own psychology. If I'm feeling like everyone is excluding me, no one's inviting me to things, I'm all alone in the world, I'm a bit depressed, you know, I'm sitting here in my house and nothing is... No one wants me in their life, right? I can sit there in misery. And I was in October in that kind of state. And then through some inner work, through some therapy, through some sort of journaling, some transformation, doing a little ceremony by myself on the land. And later that day, suddenly I got invites in from three different people. And I hadn't had invites for weeks from people. It's like, I changed something internally and it changed the field of consciousness itself. And now the field of consciousness had to respond to invite me to things. And this is a phenomena that's known within sort of, especially Jungian psychotherapy or strands of Jungian psychotherapy and probably others. But you change the inner and the, the outer reality changes to match that. What happens if we get into doing that kind of work in groups where we look at, uh there is a, what, a mining company wants to come in and devastate this, or somebody wants to build some kind of industrial incinerator or whatever it is. And instead of going onto the road and protesting, and instead of having to navigate the Facebook battleground of information and win the information war or whatever, is there a way that we can go into groups, do the inner work, do the meditation, do the whatever we need to do in terms of seeing all the parts of the village that we create, navigating that into a place where we're in a space of coherence, a space of togetherness, that all of us believes that the mind will not happen. Not just that an individual believes it, or part of the group believes it, but all of the people and all of the parts of those people believe that. And then the mind just won't happen. And there's some groups that I'm part of that have started some of that research. And there is, there's been, there has, there was a company off the coast of Portugal that wanted to do offshore fracking. Um, and a few years ago, they pulled out about a month after ceremony that was held on the beaches of Portugal. Can't prove that it is connected. Right. And yet that's not what fracking companies do when they go into something. They go for it and if they pull out somebody else comes and in this case no one's been back and it's, it matches with theory of the living universe that the universe itself gets interested in things and then corporations are or, or just manifestations uh, activists are just manifestations of the living universe's interest can we complete processes so that the universe loses interest in particular processes like what does it what happens if we pull all this oil out of the ground at this place? So it's that kind of sacred activism or inner work activism also excites me and, and draws me.
0: Right. It's interesting that you, you know, referenced the, my grandmother's hands as I was introduced to that last year. And it definitely impacted sort of the way that I understood the universe, really. The ways that even just thinking about intergenerational trauma breaks. Some of the really, yeah, centrally held hegemonic belief systems that you know that it's only DNA that comes from other people, and that that DNA holds no information beyond the genetics, and that a lot of these, I think, beliefs that sit pretty deeply in our society, and and in the way that 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 book and the, those teachings break that apart a bit, is a bit you know freeing. You know, again, it's in the same way that I think some of that spiritual work referencing too can can open up possibility because it does feel like we're stuck right now. You know, like if anything, we talked about before we hopped on the show, we were talking about how just like the world feels very bad right now because it is very bad right now. There are many hardships going on and the world always has many hardships, but I think part of it, it's, it's part of the social media experience is to be awash in it, but also it's undeniable, I think that a pandemic and a and a war in europe are not uniquely hard things to be going on at the same time by unique of course this is a, perhaps one of the biggest examples of history repeating itself and yet here we are hopefully cooler heads and peace will come much more swiftly to to europe than it has in the past but i do think that there are these feelings and experiences it's funny cuz it exists almost more commonly in interact with people than it does in our ethos about just how hard of a time people are having right now. Like I have so many more conversations with this people in my sphere of just like, yeah, people are not have, doing great. Then I see that reflected back in the output of culture. Like the output of culture we're experiencing right now is kind of one of things are still fine. It's amazing right. how we've managed to create a culture that's you know most TV shows ignore the pandemic ever exists you know in the ways that that we are created a sort of weird system to not pay attention to the real hardships that the world is facing and people everywhere are facing and I do think that some of the things you're talking about there get at that and try to break it down and get ourselves back into a place where possibility feels possible again to be honest which is something that I think this sorely missing.
1: Yeah, I think and that's one of the things that I get from Resma is hey, there is not only a way of seeing this, but there is pathways out. And I've heard about some in some cultures when they make um like when they weave a rug and it's got a pattern on it, they'll always weave some kind of imperfection into the pattern. Because without the imperfection you could get trapped in the pattern. But there's always something woven in as a pathway. It's not an imperfection. It, it, it indicates the possibility of beyond that we might feel that we're trapped. And yet there's always that pathway out and, the, and it's seeking that it's finding that. And there's a lot, I mean, a lot of attention is going into trauma and trauma research in recent years, because this is being seen as, oh yeah, this gives us some pathways out of what has otherwise become a place we can't maneuver very much
0: yeah for sure yeah so i think we'll have to end our conversation roughly there I'll give you one last uh, thought in half a second so we'll go to you and that can go to the music break at the end of the show but first i want to say thank you so much stuart bastin co-founder of xr formerly of toronto 350 and future works unknown but i look forward to hearing about it and staying connected and learning more this is a super useful retrospective even just selfishly for myself so I I appreciate your time but yeah any, any last thoughts to listeners who might have sat here with us for the last hour
1: I think the importance of the lulls in terms of reflecting and learning that there is the sexy part of activism where it's all going crazy and interaction and all of that and it's really important in not just to leave it to academics or social theorists or whatever, but in our own lives, all of us, or maybe not all of us, it won't be all of our processes, but many of us can take the time to really reflect and learn on like what, well, I think we all can reflect and learn on what we've been doing individually in life, but at the so, social movement level as well, spend that time and learn from, reflect on really face ourselves, what was effective, what built things that did or didn't work. This is part of the universe coming to know itself and yeah. And maybe that's the place And. end.